Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. We discuss this week in politics with former Toronto Star journalist Richard Brennan, who covered both Queen's Park and Parliament Hill. By the way, Ontario is scrapping streaming for grade 9 classes starting in the fall of next year. Now, critics have long said that this divide actually sets up racialized and low-income students for failure. Ontario, the only province who divided the students. What took them so long to make this move? And many Canadians feeling the impact of supply chain crisis during this holiday season. Should we expect to see fewer holiday deals this year? It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Hopefully you were able to attend one of the Remembrance Day ceremonies. There weren't too many of them going on in Hamilton area. They were close to the public, really, by invitation only. Uh, and I think they only had the two, one in Ancaster and one in uh, downtown Hamilton. Uh, but other communities did have them. Uh, and, of course, the, the, the national one that was held at the Cenotaph in Ottawa. And it's the same every year. We know that there's a protocol that's followed each and every year, no matter who the prime minister is, no matter who the governor general is. This is us. So what could possibly go wrong? Well, yesterday, something went wrong. Remember, Day ceremony at the National War Memorial was delayed after a suspicious package was found near the Cenotaph. Laura Osmond has some details. The clock had already struck 11. Thousands of people in Ottawa stood in a moment of silence when... Ladies and gentlemen, arriving now is Her Excellency, the Right Honourable Mary May Simon, Governor-General of Canada. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Governor-General Mary May Simon arrived several minutes later than planned. The ceremony was already underway when the RCMP cleared the package to safely allow the dignitaries to arrive. Laura Osmond, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. Well, there's been all sorts of pushback on this, and uh, a lot of people saying, well, there goes the prime minister again, does no respect for veterans, uh, you know, late for everything, he'd be late for his own funeral. I, I, you've seen some of the stuff on social media. Uh, I'm going to bring our good friend Richard Brennan into the conversation, former journalist uh, with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill uh, for so many years uh, for our weekly rundown. We've got some pol- uh, provincial stuff I want to talk to as well. Uh, Badger, great to get you back on the program. Uh, let's let's deal with the, the Remembrance Day thing in the Cenotaph. Uh, first of all, uh, your thoughts on, on what you saw, what you've read, and, and, and the reaction to it. Well, I was tuned in, as I I am on every every member's day, to CBC and to watching the events in Ottawa. And my wife and I are watching it and paying our respect. And I, and I see people arriving late. And I said, to, I said to my wife, I said, what the heck is going on? Can't they get this even straight? But you know what? When I find out it's a suspicious package, I, I, I you know, I have, I can only support the RCMP for uh, delaying it and dealing with the package because you never know what's going to happen these days. So if it was delayed, I'm sure you can't, you can't think for a moment that that uh, Trudeau or the new governor general are going to arrive late on Remembrance Day. It's just, it's, it's, you know, it's unthinkable. So when we find out it's a package, that was suspicious, and there, that's the right thing to do. If they had to delay it, so be it, and deal with that, because you just can't take a chance. No, and I was on our sister station, AM 640, last night with our good friend Alex Pearson talking about this. And uh, a lot of the listeners were calling in the same idea. Well, Trudeau this, Trudeau that. And, you know, well, so, you, you've heard some of the comments, and I'm sure read some of them on social media. And I, put, I, I said, I'm going to push back on this. I said, if you hate Justin Trudeau, go ahead and hate him. Then you probably got your reasons. But this is not one of them or shouldn't be. 
because as we found, oh, yeah, well, they probably made up story. The RCMP issued this press release, not the prime minister's office. They sent their bomb dis disposal unit to the place. They had sniffing dogs there, too. You don't do that because you think the prime minister might be late. There's a real threat that was there, and they reacted to it. And I said, the other side of that coin, and you've covered these things for so many years, if they'd done nothing and something happened, there was a bomb or something, they'd say, where the hell were the security people? They were doing their job. And, and so I'm, I'm going to give the governor general and, and the prime minister a pass on that. However, who the hell was organizing this thing to say, even though they got there late, don't interrupt the two minutes of silence to introduce people. I mean, how insensitive can you be? Well, I think, I think the whole thing, you know, uh, to be fair, I think the whole thing threw everybody off. Because you've got to remember, and I've covered, I've covered you know, uh, the Remembrance Day ceremony in Ottawa, and everything runs just like a fine-tuned, you know, sure. watch. And, and it just threw everybody off that, you know, that the, uh, the prime minister would show up just barely on time, and then the uh, governor general would show up late. So I think people were just going, trying to, you know, to figure out what the heck was going on. I mean, let's let's face it. Arriving late at Remembrance Day is is not acceptable, but it can happen. And for those critics, you know, to suggest that you know that it was Trudeau's fault or somebody's fault, and they hate Trudeau and that, like, give it a rest. I mean, you know, find things to criticize him for. I have no problem with that, but suggest that you know that. He was at fault here that he deliberately was late for Remembrance Day is just hogwash. Exactly. Uh, very quickly, i got to move on to this provincial thing, too. As we know, this, this was a big week for Doug Ford. He was throwing, well, we don't know how much money he was throwing around to highway projects because he didn't price any of them. Uh, but they've committed to the Highway 413, which you and I have talked about, and uh, in the uh, Bradford Bypass. Uh, but there's another element to this, too, that, that uh, I thought, caught a lot of people's interest and that's the electric vehicle thing and, and uh you know the, the the premier's come out now and said that he wants ontario to be the place for for the production of electric vehicles he's trying to cut a deal right now with indigenous peoples all of a sudden with the ring of fire to get the elements there to make batteries here in ontario it's a very grand plan so somebody asked him well you know electric car sales in ontario suck right now are uh, you going to reinstitute the, uh, you know, the rebate? No. He's, and here's the quote. He says, I'm not going to give rebates to guys buying $100,000 car, these millionaires. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it shows to me just how out of touch this guy is, you know, it's suggesting that anybody who can buy an electric car is a millionaire. That's, that's a, the whole purpose of this is to make sure that it's available to everybody else. Where does he get off with that sort of an attitude? Well, I don't understand because we give people rebates to replace, uh, you know, furnaces, uh, air conditioners, and windows, and things like that. There's a chance to give people a rebate to buy a car that's not going to produce, you know, global warming uh, contents. And the thing is, let's face it, there's nothing wrong with, you know, I know what he's saying, and I have I have some sympathy for what he's saying. You know, you, you find people that buy high-end electric cars. You know, often they're, they, you know, they've got the money to, to do so. But the point is, we're trying to get everybody to do this. We're trying to get everybody to buy electric cars, if we can, or hybrid cars. And if it takes a few dollars of the, you know, taxpayers' money to get them to do that, well, so be it. I, you can't be bullheaded about this. You have to look at what 
the price we're paying for global warming and what we can do. And, and that's one thing we can do. But your point's well taken. I mean, the government does offer incentives for other things, like you say, furnace, air conditioning, uh, different windows and things like this. This is the all, it's, it's all in the same package, it, electric car. And, and I get that. When, when the wind government instituted this, Tesla was pretty much the only one on the market. There were a couple of other examples, but they were almost insignificant. Everybody's in the game now. You know, Chevy, Ford, you name it. They're all building them. They're all trying to design these things. Uh, and they're not 100000 bucks. You, you can pay 100000 bucks for a car if you want, and, uh, any kind of car. Uh, but Teslas, they've got ma- models that are less than that. Chevy Volt. I mean, you go down the list like this. Uh, right now, we stand, I think we're last in, in the country right now, percentage of people that are driving electric cars on the road at 3%. Uh, he's got to do something about that. Because I'm going to tell you right now, Mr. Premier, if you don't sell them here, nobody's going to build them here. They're going to go someplace else where they know the market is hot. Well, well, that's, well that's it. And, you know, right now, and and I don't want I don't want to raise any scary flags here, but Brampton is the Chrysler plant in Brampton is only you know uh, it's only going to uh, 2023. It's got commitment to 2023, and with you know building the you know muscle cars, if you will. And what's going to happen after that? Well, I we all pray that you know. Th- they start building electric cars in Brampton because that's thirty six hundred jobs. So it's just it's just not saying when you say statements like that we're we're just not doing it. Well, you have to think of the bigger picture. And so once in a while, and, and the premier does think of the bigger picture sometimes, but sometimes he doesn't. And I think this is a case where he's not looking at what how we can all benefit by some kind of rebate for people. I don't know what you, how much you can give them, but it's something to kind of ease the financial pain. Well, exactly. And the, the, I guess the concern here is this is not the first time he's, he's made what I would probably consider to be bombastic statements. And nine times out of 10, Richard, he has to walk back on it sometime later because he realizes, you know, that, okay, I mean, he did this when he got elected. You know, he canceled the rebate program, of course. He canceled the cap and trade. But he also tore out all the charging stations that the previous government had put in and said, we're not going to use that stuff. Well, here he is three years later trying to become the, you know, the the, the, the standard bearer for electric vehicles. Uh, you know, you've got to watch what you say because it, I, I know he hasn't been in politics that long. But, I mean, he should have learned rule one is your words can come back and bite you. Be careful what you say. Well, I think you nailed it there, Bill, because, you know, I think the Premier's got the only bicycle in the world that only pedals backwards. <laughs> because we're going to, he's going to say this today, and a week from now, he's going to, you know, he's going to say, well, you know, maybe I misspoke, uh, maybe I shouldn't have said that, that we should, uh, you know, maybe there is money available to help people uh, afford to buy these uh, electric vehicles. We'll see, and you know, if 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 history repeats itself, he will. I mean, that's what that's what he's done. But you know, there's a lot of people out there that think, you know, you know, if that's such a bad thing that he actually, you know, he might. I'm thinking of Ralph Klein. How Ralph Klein used to say mm-hmm. some some crazy things and and have to and have to retract them. And people, you know, people used to praise him for being a guy that was in touch with the public. Well. Some people think that the fact that he does change his mind, and we're talking about uh, Doug Ford here, does change his mind, is a good thing. But there's a group of people that think, you know, uh, he just can't make a decision. And when he does make a decision, it's, it's, not, it's not the right one. 
Well, I could say he's got to be careful what he says. Uh, and as they're heading to election mode, uh, you might just see on a, on a boat face on this one, too. Uh, Badger, we got to run. Uh, thanks, as always. Great to have you on the program. Enjoy the weekend. We'll talk again next week. You too, week. Bill. Thanks a lot. Take care. Richard Brennan, of course, joining us uh, with his weekly visit at uh, what's happening with federal and provincial politics. This is the Bill Kelly Show. Glad you're with us here today on 900 CHML and, of course, on 980 CFPL. Uh, one last thing for grade 8 students to worry about these days. When they choose their courses for the first year in high school, they're not going to have to decide between applied or academic classes. Uh, the province of here is ready to scrap the streaming process for all grade 9 courses. And uh, it's something that many people have been asking this government to do for quite some time. Global's Tina Trajani has some details. Ontario is the only province to divide grade 9 students according to their goals post-high school and whether they plan on joining the workforce right away or continuing on with their education. Those opposed to the streaming system say it's about time. They say this way of doing things has disproportionately pushed black and other racialized and low-income students into the applied stream, which may limit their options in the future and highlights the inequality in the education system. The Globe and Mail obtained a memo from the Ministry of Education. It was sent to school board directors this week. It says starting next school year, all grade 9 subjects Subjects will be offered in one stream. A new de-streamed science course will be available in September and other courses will be offered as academic only. A spokesperson told the paper the idea here is to remove barriers for all students and set them up for a successful future. Tina Trajani, Global News. Well, let's talk about this. Paul Kakamo is the Vice President of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Paul, thanks for the time. Glad you could join us today. Uh, uh, first and foremost, uh, your thoughts on the, on the announcement yesterday. Well, certainly as an organization and on behalf of our members, we support uh, any effort that we could make uh, uh, in public education to, to eliminate and or remove barriers that are clearly, according to the data that we're seeing and the public is seeing, have created limitations on, and in this case, black, indigenous, racialized and low-income students. So we're, we're supportive of the move. Having said that, uh, it's not just the move that's necessary. We are supportive of a, a appropriately resourced move. And in the absence of any additional information on that, we certainly have some very serious concerns. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, as we've mentioned before, I, we know we've done segments on the program about this in the past before governments would respond to this. And I know that your association and many others have been asking for the government to reassess this for quite some time. Uh, so the announcement has finally come. But you're, you and your members are the ones on the front line. What are you seeing and what needs to be done here? Well, I mean, we, what we're, we, we, I think we would all agree what needs to be done, and that's the elimination of these barriers. But yeah. uh, the challenge that we're seeing is, and they got to first start at this uh, last year when they de-streamed the grade 9 math curriculum, and it was done very last minute. It didn't include appropriate training and provision of resources. And what we saw are certainly uh, some hiccups that uh, could have been avoided had those conversations had been, uh, been fully flushed out. And now, uh, you know, we're seeing now, about nine months prior to to the next provincial election, a broad statement uh, that uh, you know paints the government as the the champion of of moving uh, the public education system towards a more equitable place, but uh, very lean on the necessary details that my members, uh, including teachers and support staff working working in classrooms, are going to need to make this work. It's very reminiscent of the the Harris government in the 1990s who did the exact same thing and de-streamed the grade nine programming without the necessary resources to make it successful. And regrettably, kids and the staff that served them um, paid a price for that over a protracted number of years. And, and in hindsight, uh, it, was, uh, it, it is not viewed as, uh, as a very positive move, what happened in the 90s. And unfortunately, Bill, it's like a bad case of deja vu. 
Paul, where's the dialogue here? I mean, as I just mentioned, you guys are the frontline workers. If they're going to make changes like this, you would think there would be consultation uh, with organizations like yours and, and others to say, okay, we, we understand there's a problem. We're on the same page here. Let, let's talk about fixing this. And, and instead, you guys heard about it when I heard about it, and that's not really the way things should work. Although we, we have observed with this government, there there really are a, a very limited number of pathways that they are willing to to meet us on to communicate about the concerns that we are hearing from our members. I mean, we are we are in the in advanced stages of a pandemic. I, I hope we're all coming out of it, and we have been trying to to have a conversation with the government about the impact that's not only having on staff and, and their workloads, uh, trying to provide some semblance of meaningful program uh, and, and exercising you know calisthenics in doing so. And and we're what we're finding is is, is uh, it's uh, it's almost like we're we're talking into our own little echo chamber. If uh, if the government wants to sit down with us and talk about those concerns and talk about what we learned as frontline workers in the 90s when this attempt was made previously, we would talk to them about well this pathway can provide meaningful benefits to our education system. It has to be appropriately resourced. I point to one key fact: the government has said. They're simply going to code these courses in our in grade nine next year all across Ontario as academic level courses. Academic level courses have a disproportionately high maximum class size. And what we're very afraid we're going to see is class sizes at the grade nine level balloon as they should. You'll know grade nine academic students, perhaps you can put more students in those classes. But students with, you know, perhaps more specialized needs that have typically taken grade nine applied level classes often benefit from contractually negotiated smaller classes. What's going to happen to class sizes in September? We know how this government feels from two years ago at the negotiating table about class sizes. They wanted to increase them by 25%. So in the absence of any of these details out of this government, we're actually very concerned that grade nine class sizes are going to balloon as high as 36%. I, I got a minute left here, and, and and Paul, this is this is part of a much larger conversation. I, I'm well, hoping we can have you and, and others back to talk about this. But the question I was going to ask, and you just kind of led me into it, is, is if the de-streaming is going to happen, and apparently it is now, are you concerned that some students who were in the other element before are going to get left behind? We are very concerned about the impact that's going to happen on those students because, uh, you know, if you look at, at, at students who struggle academically, we want to be sure the resources are in place to support them. But conversely, Bill, we're just as concerned about students with strong academic capacities and how are we going to provide them the challenges they need to excel as they pursue their post-secondary vocation, which in many cases could be university or, 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 or other types of, of pursuits. So there is a, a genuine, desperate conversation that needs to happen right now about how we're going to meet the needs of kids that is completely absent from the government narrative. And that should be concerning the parents of school-age kids. More to come on this one, uh, and it's a very, very important topic. And like you say, there's some ramifications here that I think people need to be aware of. Paul, thank you for jumping in for a, a few moments here today anyway. We'll uh, certainly carry on this conversation down the road. Appreciate it, Bill. Thanks. Paul Kakamo, who's the vice president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. And, and, and let's be clear on the message here. Yeah, this is the right thing to do, government. Thank you very much for this. And the teachers don't think they're in agreement with that. But when, when he talks about resources, what about the ones who, who are going to say, I, I can't keep up. I don't quite get what you're saying. There's going to have to be resources. They're going to have to get special assistance. And at the same time, you're going to have to be able to, for those who are maybe gifted students, you're going to have to make accommodation for them too. It's When you put everybody in the class and say, this is all going to be the same, uh, it's not the same. 
and and I'm I'm hoping that they understand that. And maybe there's going to be more announcements about down the road. We can only hope. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, I want to talk about a very special hockey game that's going to be happening in Kitchener tonight. Kitchener, of course, is a junior A hockey hotbed and has been forever, I guess, uh, with the Rangers. Well, tonight, the Rangers are going to play the Owen Sound Attack. And that's as per usual, Friday night in Kitchener, jam-packed arena, of course, at the Memorial Auditorium. But it's going to be a pretty special game uh, because this will be the first time that a female has been an on-ice official at a junior A hockey game, and it's going to happen right in Kitchener. And she is Kirsten Welsh, and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Kirsten, great to have you on the show. First of all, congratulations. This is a big day for you. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Bill. Yeah, it's just really crazy. I'm so, so excited about it. Are you nervous? Uh, nervous is an understatement, but I'm just trying to go with the flow and roll the punches, so we'll see. <laughs> well, uh, this, this has been a long, rocky road for you because, I mean, this is uh, your hockey player, of course, and women's hockey is, is so great these days, and I think a lot of people are finally getting in tune with that. Uh, but you, you decided yeah. to switch over. Uh, first and foremost, what drew you to officiating? Yeah, so, I mean, I just really wanted to stay in the game. Um, I obviously have a huge passion for hockey. It's been a huge part of my life of developing, you know, who I am as a character and um, just kind of, you know, why I'm here in the first place. So it's it's really been a huge part of my life, and I kind of got contacted after I graduated um, to kind of come do this NHL Combine thing that uh, they specifically look for ex-hockey players to try refing. Um, so I went ahead and I gave it a shot and, uh, it just kind of opened up a lot of doors for me that I never even knew existed. So I was really great timing and, uh, I'm just super fortunate for the experience I've been on so far. Well, I gotta tell you, our listeners around here would know all about this. I mean, especially in the Hamilton area, it's kind of a, a referee hotbed, uh, NHL hall of famer, Bill Friday, Absolutely. of course, is actually lived around the corner Absolutely. from me when I was growing up. Uh, the Dvorsky family, oh, of course, goodness. from Guelph. Uh, I worked with the uh, daughter, Mary, and, of course, the two brothers were both the referees. Dad was a referee, uh, and the list goes yeah, on. And, well, Ron right. McLean, who uh, – Ron McLean's a friend of yeah, ours, too, for the program. So uh, I know, I, 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 we know the zebras here, Kirsten, and we're on side. <laughs> i got to ask you, though, when you played hockey, you were the captain of the team in college there, of course, at uh, Robert Morris. Uh, so you had some interaction with referees anyway as the captain. What's it feel like to be on the other yeah. side of that discussion now? Um, honestly, it's, it's really, it gave me a lot of insight just to kind of like respect the players and, uh, like understand, you know, where they're coming from. And all you really have to do as a ref is just like explain, you know, it takes four to five seconds to explain, you know, why you called the thing you called or, and you know, it like squashes any sort of tension. So I think, uh, just growing up and kind of seeing the differences between referees, it just kind of, I think made me a better like perspective for, for kind of just talking to the players and knowing where they're coming from. So definitely transferable skill, for sure. <laughs> you did uh, the Prospects Tournament in Buffalo. Uh, it, for those who may not know, this yes. is it's basically an NHL tournament for all the, the, the guys that were drafted and they're trying to impress the NHL teams. Uh, so it's, they, yeah. these are pros. These are guys that want to be pros and wind up the big league. What was that like? Yeah, that was super. That was really incredible. So that was like my first roughing experience ever. Um Definitely, you know, kind of opened my eyes as to how how serious, you know, people take it. It's, it's, it's a commitment. Like, it's not just something sure. you can just do on, like, your spare time and, you know, not, like, put effort into doing. But you have to, you know, be in shape. You have to be, keep up with the, some of the fastest, you know, hockey players in the world. Like, if they're getting drafted into the NHL, the NHL is literally, like, the best league in the world. So, in order to keep that up, it just it requires, you know, commitment, dedication, and like anything, like anything else you want to be successful at, right? So... Um, I actually went to Traverse City this year as well for the Red Wings um, prospect camp, and that was uh, kind of similar to the Buffalo one, just kind of in a different location. 
And yeah, it was, it was a super great experience. It just kind of showed me like what I have to look forward to, and uh, yeah, it just kind of opened my eyes to to the repping world for sure. <laughs> now we've seen uh, for sports fanatics like myself and so many others, uh, we've seen ref, uh, female refs in the NBA, uh, in professional yes. football. Now that's starting to happen. Uh, still relatively yes. new with hockey. Did you ever wonder what's taken them so long? Honestly, hockey is a different sport than football and basketball. I think it's very, very different to be a referee um, on uh, inside the glass, we call it. Yeah. Like if you see NFL and NBA, like the referees are running up the sidelines or standing in the sidelines, and they're not really involved in the play that much. Whereas hockey, like you've got to be aware 24-7 for flying pucks, flying sticks, flying bodies. Like It's just different in that aspect. So I think, you know, with the NHL, like, yeah, they may be a little, you guys may think they're a little late, but I think they're, you know, just taking their time and finding the right prospects to make this transition into, you know, officiating for females. So, well, well, kudos to the American Hockey League because they're the ones that really stepped up here and said that there were going to be 10 female officials. And that was great news for you, obviously. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about the fact that you're doing Kitchener tonight. You're doing an AHL game this weekend, aren't you? Yeah. 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 I have, uh, I have Kitchener night and then I have, um, Belleville tomorrow. So that'll be my first uh, Bell AHL game then too. So that'll be yeah, I'm super excited. I'm just trying to like take it game game by game and day by day, and just trying to focus on the next game ahead of me and not try to think too much about it. Honestly, <laughs> how do the players treat you? Is is there any difference there from uh, you know? I mean, you you've been a player, etc. But you you know this yeah. this is unique. Are you just the official of the game? Sure. They're not paying any attention. Yeah, yeah, honestly, um, like, they'll say some things to me, like, before and after the games, but during play, no, I literally just get treated like any other official. Like, if I'm in the way, they scream at me to move. <laughs> like, that's what it should be, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to get treated any differently. Like, even when I'm getting, like, if I'm in the way and, like, take a hit, like, I don't want them to stop and apologize or not try as hard, you know, to, to, like, I chose to do this job, so it's, like, that's part of it. So I don't want to, I don't want, I don't want them to change any part of their game to, you know, try and, like, come to my knees. Like, I just want to be a part of it and kind of go under the radar and just be, you know, out there as an official. Best thing I could ask for. Well, and that's that's kind of the mantra of every official, isn't it? You don't want to be seen and you don't want to get in the way, but you have to be there to call the game. <laughs> exactly, exactly. If you if you go unnoticed all game, that's a great game. <laughs> that's what I call it. <laughs> <laughs> so, is, is, is it inevitable, do you think, Kirsten, that, that this is going to gravitate? I mean, you and, and well, the other nine female officials in, in the AHL, the NHL's got to make this yeah. move, I would think, sooner than later. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely in the works, obviously. And uh, I think the AHL has to be conquered first before any talk of uh, that next step is in place because that gap there, it's, uh, you know, it's pretty significant. So I think once we kind of conquer the AHL, then we can kind of start thinking about the next step there. But I'm just so thankful for, and like grateful for the opportunities that have you know I've had so far, and I'm just trying to, you know, not get it too too ahead of myself here. <laughs> it's uh, if you're going to start in the in in the OHL, is you know Kitchener's as good a place as any. It's it's, it's always a jam packed arena. It's always a crazy live crowd. So I mean, you, you you're going to get caught up in this, and they're going to get caught up in this. Uh, it, the minute the puck's dropped, I would think. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's just being a part of the game, right? Like you just like I go out there and you got to focus on your job and you know the players' job is to, is to score goals and play well, and the referees' job is to just call the call the game as fair as they can. So I just kind of treat it like a like a day on the job, just trying to do my best. So not trying to overthink the, <laughs> the energy of the crowd or how crazy it's going to be. It's just uh, it's just another day day at work. 
So. Well, and I'm sure that I, probably more than half the people at the arena tonight just going to there was a female referee I didn't notice. So I was watching the game, uh, which is, I guess, good news yeah, for you. Exactly. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> Listen, congratulations once again. This is this is a a, a great move for you and, and for your career. Uh, and I want people to remember yeah. the name Kirsten Welsh uh, because there's, I thought we're going to hear a lot more from you in the future. Uh, good luck tonight, and uh, good luck with the career, Kirsten. And thanks so much for spending some time Thank with us you. today. Thank Take you care. so much, Bill. Thanks for having me on here, and I appreciate it. Have a good one. You betcha. We'll talk in, in the future, I'm sure. Kirsten Welsh, uh, making history with the Ontario Hockey League tonight. First female official at uh, the Rangers game. And as you said, she said, work up to Belleville for the American Hockey League tomorrow. Uh, and the American Hockey League, as I mentioned, uh, hired 10 other female officials. And it's it's going to happen in the NFL. and Well, it already has, but I mean in the NHL, too sooner than later. Uh, well, glad you're with us today. Busy day today. The Bill Kelly Show, CFPL London, CHML Hamilton. Uh, we are headed for a lunar eclipse. Uh, this is apparently a, a monumental, uh, one of the longest, I guess, in, in this century. So what are we in for? What's this all about? Uh, joining us to talk about this is Hannah Ryan, who is a professor of astronomy and astrophysics at the University of Toronto. Professor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. You're welcome. Good morning. We, uh, we talk about eclipses, and maybe we should make a, 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 just kind of define exactly what we're talking about here. We know about uh, solar eclipses. You're not supposed to look at those. Lunar eclipses is a different thing, though, isn't it, altogether? Yeah, they're, they're perfectly safe to look at. They happen at night, and um, you, you, will, you will see the moon uh, change color from, from bright right to, to a very dark red. So uh, perfectly safe to look at. Now, what is actually happening for that to occur? So the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun, they all line up in one line, and the Moon passes through the shadow of the Earth. Um, that's going to happen next Friday, um, early in the morning. So the maximum eclipse will be around 4 a.m. in the morning. And um, yeah, they, the reason why the Moon then appears slightly reddish is the same reason why the Sun does appear red. So some of the light passing through the Earth's atmosphere is going to hit the Moon, and it's mostly the red light that, that will be uh, passing through. So it will be a very stunning visual uh, appearance of the moon. Is, is it because the sun's rays are that strong, or is it uh, just is it the atmosphere that kind of refracts that, the light that's coming at it? Yep, correct. It, it, it refracts the light, and uh, mostly the red light that passes through. Uh, same effect as the sunset. Um, you'll see the same red light that you see. So the sunset just reflected then from the moon back to you on the Earth. How often does this happen, Professor? So lunar eclipses happen fairly frequently, um, um, but this is a particularly long one, as you already mentioned. It's the longest one since the 15th century. It's long because the moon is sometimes a little bit closer to the Earth, sometimes a bit further away, and this lunar eclipse just happens to happen when the moon is very far away, and therefore it needs a little bit longer to travel through the shadow of the Earth, which is a bit wider the further away. So it, it's a little bit longer than normal. And you're not going to notice the difference just by eye, but um, yeah, if you, if you calculate how long it takes, it, it's particularly long this time. Well, the estimate I saw on, on the one that you're describing here for next Friday is about an hour and 43 minutes. Does that sound about right? Um, so the, so the, from the very beginning to the very end, it's actually going to take six hours. Oh, okay. But, but the, the middle part that, that's the most interesting one, that, that will take about, um, about three hours. Now, now to, to the naked eye, can we actually see this developing? I mean, with this, a lunar or solar eclipse, and we're not supposed to look directly at those. Uh, I think we all know that. Well, Donald Trump didn't, but anyway, everybody else does. You can actually see it occurring. I mean, you can start to see the shadow that, that's going over, and it, it starts to black out. It, will it be that def definitive when you see the lunar eclipse? 
it is going to be very definitive. Yes, if you if you set your alarm clock at 4 a.m. and you look out the window at the moon, um, it it will be very obvious what's going on there. So, and as you mentioned, you said about six hours in total from the the, the whole thing from beginning to end to complete. Uh, yeah. Now. But they're they're not always that long. Uh, there's another one coming up, I understand, in another couple of years, isn't there? Um, they happen about twice a year, so I think the next one that we okay. might be able to see is, is actually in, in May. Okay, May of 2022 then. And But uh, my understanding is this, this one's not going to be as definitive and not as long. Correct, yes. Uh, I'm always intrigued by 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 astronomy and what's going on here with with things of this nature and, and our universe and our solar system, uh, and especially... Uh, the, the the relationship between the Earth and the Moon, uh, and and it's it's been a fascination with us, I guess. Well, for centuries, uh, culminated, of course, in the 1969 Neil Armstrong landing, uh, and we're trying to learn more about this, I guess, just about every year. Uh, NASA announced a little while ago that they were going to head back to the Moon. They seem to have put the the pause button on that for now. It, it, is it important for us, Professor, to to maintain that 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 enthusiasm for exploration and, and for trying to find out exactly our relationship with uh, the other planets and the other moons in our solar system? Well, definitely. I mean, these, these eclipses are one of the most stunning astronomical events that you can just see with the naked eye, and, and, and humans have been fascinated by them for, for basically forever. So, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, from a scientific point of view, um, there's, there's nothing interesting happening for this eclipse. We, we know precisely what's going to happen. We, we, we know the physics behind it. We, we don't learn anything from the eclipse. But, but I'm still, as an astrophysics professor, going to set the alarm and, and get up at 4 o'clock in the night. Um, it's like a good movie if you've seen it once, but um, it, doesn't make it, it doesn't make it worse if you watch it again. Oh yeah, listen. I've seen I've seen The Godfather about twenty five times, so I'll see a lunar eclipse too. Uh, listen, I'm usually up by five. I'll just set the alarm for an hour early next Friday uh, to check this. This is going to be fascinating, and here's hoping the weather's going to agree with us uh, so that everybody can see this. Uh, really do appreciate you taking some time for us today, Professor. Thank you so much for this. You're welcome. Uh, professor, of course, Hanno Ryan is the uh, uh, professor of astronomy and astrophysics. He's at the University of Toronto. Uh, and if you're into uh, astrophysics and all this sort of stuff and lunar eclipses, next Friday, you know, early in the morning, as you mentioned, uh, you can go and see this. And that reddish tinge to the moon means you're uh, watching a lunar eclipse. It, uh, I, I think it, it humbles us and just probably reminds us of just that we're one tiny little part of a much bigger solar system and a much bigger universe, too. Uh, but if you're going to be up and about, uh, and hopefully the weather's going to be nice, nice clear night for it, you can see that a week from today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Started your holiday shopping yet? And a lot of people wait for Black Friday, which is typically the last Friday of November, so we've still got a little ways to go. And you've heard about some of the other things about supply chain, and that's certainly going to have an impact. But, uh, well, shoppers and, and, and I think consumers uh, probably going to have to learn to pivot. Uh, the new survey has come out right now that says it's uh, it's going to be a bit of a different holiday shopping season for us, uh, but not necessarily tragic by any stretch of the imagination. Peter Hughes is with us. Peter is the national leader of KPMG's consumer practice. Uh, Peter, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for the time today. Thank you. You there? Sorry. Thanks, Bill. I just yeah, I just heard a dot on that. Scares the daylights out of me when I hear those things. Uh, let's 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 talk a little bit about uh, what's going to be happening here. And we've all seen the stories of supply change and the tragic, you know, the, the boat overturned and some of these things flying to the bottom of the ocean. And you think, oh my God, there goes our holiday season. It's it's not quite as dramatic as that, but it is going to be different this year, isn't it, Peter? Uh, it's going to be very different. So every year, uh, KPMG conducts a survey in advance of the Black Friday and holiday shopping season. And we do that to get a bit of a sneak peek into how retailers and shoppers are feeling 
And if we thought that last year was going to be unprecedented, uh, we've surely surpassed that as we're entering into a shopping season, quite frankly, in the middle uh, of a perfect storm. We've got the ongoing pandemic. We've got inflation levels not seen since 2003. We've got epic uh, government spending and debt levels. Supply and demand is completely out of whack. Labor shortages, and then you've got the environmental considerations that are happening, especially with COP26. So, you know, it's going to be a, it's going to be an unusual season. And supply chain brand loyalty are all the things that are really at the center of all of this. Let's talk about brand loyalty. I want to start with that, and I'm glad you brought that up because it's it's interesting. As I looked at some of the numbers from your survey, uh, you know, I, I guess a lot of us usually have at least something in mind. You know, when it goes to, to our shopping and gift giving, and you know, this one for this person, that for that person, and brand loyalty plays a large part. If you're buying electronics, you probably have one or two brands that you're familiar with. But the survey here indicate that uh, that a lot of Canadians, especially, are going to say, "Well, I'll switch then if if the brand I want is not going to be available, and we, you know, the, who, what are the chances?" I'll go to this other one here. And, you know, in other words, they're going to be, learn to pivot, I guess, which is going to be essential, I guess, this holiday season. Yeah, Bill, you're, you're absolutely right. So, you know, the, um, the rise of e-commerce and online shopping has really increased brand loyalty because when you're shopping and not physically touching something, you trust the brands that you know so that you can click and receive and you have a better sense of what you're going to get. But this year, we're in our KPMG survey, you know, 75% of our respondents uh, haven't even started shopping. Now, it's pretty typical because people wait until Black Friday or till the last minute. But of those that have started, about two-thirds of them have uh, indicated that they've not been able to find what they were looking for. And so when you've got a situation like that, people are going to go and access something, and there's lots of options out there, and so they're pivoting. And that ha- comes at the expense of brand loyalty. And I don't think it's a matter of, consumers leaving a brand i think it's a matter of whoever's got the product in the general sort of area of what i'm looking for that's the one i'm going to get if i think i'm going to receive it in time exactly i mean if, if i want to get a big screen tv and I've, I've always bought sony if i'm buying it in july and they say it's going to take six weeks okay i'll wait six weeks but now we're into holiday season right so it's it's very contracted so you may not get that sony but the guy could say hey LG's really good too all right i'll, I'll get lg then uh, you know, and it, it may only be a temporary, but I mean, the, you know, the product is still available to them. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, you bring up uh, what, you know, it might only be temporary. I, I, quite frankly, I don't know if we know how temporary well, that's it, um, yeah. this, this is. And, you know, so, you know, we've rattled off a bunch of stats and sort of a lot of uh, macroeconomic things that are happening. But, you know, what does it all mean? Well, um, if, you know, if the pandemic has introduced a whole crash course in all things related to testing and learning online and doing meetings online and all these sorts of things i think this is the wealthy what i'd call the wealthy barber 2.0 because uh citizens and uh the general population are getting a crash course in supply chain management and macroeconomic policies uh, because you know that brand loyalty is going to be challenged um you know so that because goods aren't going to be procured and you know, your brand promise is really going to face scrutiny now, and your frontline staff are going to feel the effects of this. I also think that, and uh, we also think that um, local is going to play a much bigger role because, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to have uh, shorter supply chain hops and a greater likelihood that you're going to receive something in time. And then, quite frankly, the last thing is that, um, <clears throat> you know, we're going to have um, store purchases, I think, 
make a resurgence because if I can physically see and touch and take home the product that I want or something close to it, I'm going to opt for that because it's low, it's low risk, no risk. Well, that's great news for retailers, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure you know a lot of them reopened their doors a few months ago and say, "Where is everybody?" Uh, because we all, a lot of us, anyway, gravitated to online shopping. But but if we're going to head back into the stores right now, uh, there is going to be some product there. Maybe not the one you want, but uh, one that may be compatible with that. That's great because that's one of the numbers that jumped out at me, Peter, from your survey. Seventy-three uh, percent of the people you surveyed said they're going to buy goods made in Canada now instead of overseas. Uh, you know, terrible what's happening with the supply chain. But as you say, it's it's a much more contracted supply chain here in Canada if it's going to come from Toronto or Montreal as opposed to overseas. Bill, it's quite possible that that's a bit of a mirage, though. And, and, the, issue, and the reason is that all retailers, even Canadian ones, are facing the same, um, you know, out-of-whack supply and demand that's going on right now. And so a couple of things I think that Canadian shoppers are going to have to be aware of this year is that you're not going to see the same uh, prices that you would have seen in previous Black Fridays and holiday shopping seasons. The supply just, quite frankly, does not line up with the demand that always comes with this time of year. And so with coming out of the lockdowns that we've had over the last year and a half, retailers are going to try and recoup what, you know, they've, what they've lost. And I think that's going to come at the expense of limited sales, or at least not as dramatic as they, as they would have been in the past. And so, hey, if you're a retailer and you've been able to overcome some of the supply shortages and you've gotten product into your stores, that's great. If you don't have it in your stores now, it's not likely you're going to get it, you know, into your stores by the time the uh, the big shopping season starts right about now. How are consumers going to respond to that? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to go to the wacky days. I mean, you know, in the Black Friday thing before caught on here in Canada, we'd hear some of these horrific stories in the states every year. And you know, Walmart would have a forty-inch kind of color TV for fifteen bucks. You know, something like that. Those are lost leaders to try to get people in there. And we saw how how crazy that was. Uh, but there were sales. Uh, you know, you could argue about whether or not they were effective sales or not. But people are always looking for a bargain. And, and as you say, statistically here, it looks like those bargains may not be there. Some some are still going to offer that. But instead of seeing like 50% off, uh, you're probably going to see it at, at very much the, the usual price. Because these guys have been losing their shirt for the last year and a half. Yeah, Bill, look, I mean, the, the, the reality is that a bargain is all relative. So a bargain yeah. for something that is... Um, you know, 20% off, whereas it might have been 40% off a year before, it doesn't matter. I mean, if you can get it, that's that's the best deal that's going. And I think that, you know, we're getting into this busy shopping season. We've got inflationary pressures that are going to continue to mount. We've got a little bit more income. Uh, CERB has sort of carried on further. I think people have money to spend. They've saved it on lack of travel and a whole bunch of other things. And I think they want to let loose. So I don't know that the lack of sales is going to constrain buying habits. I think that the definition of a bargain is going to be completely redefined this year, though. I'm going to be interested to see just how we do as consumers respond to that, because you're right. Uh, they, they keep telling us, uh, you know, we have more disposable income because we, you know, we're not spending the money over the last year and a half. So, you know, you may psychologically say, wait a second, you know, I, I, that, that TV used to be 40% off, now it's 20% off, but hey, I can afford it now because I got more cash in the bank. So I'm going to buy it anyway. Uh, so uh, we don't know yet. I mean, we're going to have to wait. I guess this is going to be hindsight to see just how consumers respond to to the, what's going on here and whether or not they want to, uh, I guess, you know, spend some of this disposable income that they may have stacked up. 
Yeah, agreed. And look, I'd, I'd leave the listeners with, uh, you know, sort of three main thoughts coming out of our, coming out of our survey and coming out of, uh, certainly my experience in running the KPMG customer practice. And that's, you know, uh, be transparent. So retailers are going to have to be really transparent about the lead times on when they think people are going to be able to receive something and if they're going to receive something. Um, you're going to have to arm your frontline staff. There, I, I really am concerned. I mean, we've obviously seen uh, issues and challenges with our frontline healthcare workers. Well, you know what? The new incarnation of that for holiday season is going to be your frontline staff who are in the stores and on the contact centers, and they need to be armed with some degree of latitude to diffuse situations around that they, quite frankly, may not have the uh, intelligence, um, the data and intelligence at hand to deal with. And then, you know, this is going to be a Monday morning quarterback. So, you know, sometime in January, everybody's going to have to look at how their supply chain works, how many hops they have for products to get from one place to another, and rethink whether or not uh, that's the best strategy, even if it comes at the cost of or the expense of higher prices down the road. Certainty is certainly better than higher cost, I think. How's, how are retailers going to handle this? I mean, uh, uh, there's probably still going to be some kind of a crunch here. Are, are we going to see more people working all the holidays? I mean, in the past, pre-pandemic, of course, there there were always staff that were added for holiday seasons. Is that going to happen again this year? You know, uh, I, I, I don't. I don't have the crystal ball, and I think that if the last 18 months, especially in the area of retail and shopping, has uh, has, has demonstrated is that uh, making predictions is going to be tough. Um, I think that you know we're going to enter into this season. I mean, we're we're into it now. There's no turning back. Yeah. There's going to be uh, shortages. There are shortages, and if you take any look at the ports in Los Angeles and Shanghai. You know, those a lot of those products that uh, we've ordered are sitting out just less than a mile offshore, but you can't swim out and get it. So, yeah, and I know President Biden said they're going to send more workers over there. So, I mean, they're they're, they're aware of it and they're working on it. So, we'll see how things go out. Uh, always insightful, though, to get the uh, the information from KPMG on this. Uh, Peter, thanks for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. Peter Hughes, who is the national leader of KPMG and Consumer Practice, and uh, they do this on an annual basis. And it's it's going to be different this year, but uh, not impossible. And there's still going to be a lot of stuff out there. May just get there and be discerning about this and, and be flexible. As he said, a lot of the uh, people in the survey said that, you know, they'll switch brand names. You know, if they, if they can't get the one they're usually buying, you know, they'll, they'll switch to something else. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see. And just once we see the numbers after Christmas as to uh, how people did pivot and how much money is going to be spent on this. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.